Welcome, listeners, to episode of 43 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. We've got Jason here, a.k.a. Traveling Cloak, uh, with Sarah Kozloff. Uh, Sarah's uh, binge-worthy Nine Realms series was published by Tor earlier this year and includes four books released in consecutive months. Uh, Sarah's also a professor of film history at Vassar College and has contributed to many critical works related to the film genre. So, how are you doing today, Sarah? I'm good. Good. How are uh, finding ways to keep busy? Obviously, you're home. You mentioned you're still doing a lot of writing. Doing a lot of writing. Um, okay, good. Let's get into. So we talked about. Um, so this series is four books in four months. I wanted to start with that, talking about how um, I mentioned it's kind of a binge-worthy series. And when I was reading it, you know, I shouted from the rooftops how much I really like this series. It almost felt to me like four months straight, like it was. Almost like a, the series had to be told in that amount of time. Um, was that your purpose in writing that? Did you kind of feel that way when you were writing the the, the, the series? Um, well, I wrote it all <laughs> before I got an agent and before I sold it. So I conceived it all as if it were one long book. And, uh, you know, it needs for um, for handiness and, and length to be cut up into four separate volumes. But really, it's one story. So um, it was Tor's um, idea to release it in what they call Rapid Pub. And I loved that because as a reader, I hate waiting 18 months, two years, waiting forever in some cases for for a story to finish. Uh, While you wait, you forget um, what had happened before and you're no longer sort of in that headspace. So when Tor decided to release it, you know, four books, four months, um, I was delighted. It seemed to fit. the material. Sure. I think you mentioned that kind of the first time that we met, you mentioned how hard you thought it was for readers and also writers. I mean, I think you said, Hey, it would have been harder for you as a writer to write a book, sell it, and then have them come back to you and say, okay, let's, let's write a book too now. And you have to go back and say, okay, where was, where was I relating these different things? Right. 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 No, um, I, I loved working on it all together at the end. Because even in book four, I would come up with an idea. Um, I'll, I'll tell, I mean, there was an idea about the queen flying the, the flag when the princess's talent is discovered. Right. It wasn't initially in book one. Oh, that's interesting. So that wasn't, I, that wasn't part I, of the original I, scope. No, I just thought of that by the time I got to book four. Wow. And, uh, but nothing had been published. So I can go back and make everything work. Um, so I really don't, I feel um, sort of mystified and, uh, and sympathetic for writers who publish their series, you know, over gaps because they can never go back to book one and fix something or insert something. Yeah. No one um, to tell you no at that point, right? No. No one to say, no, you can't do that. You've already got it in there. 
It's already in there. <laughs> now they can make changes, obviously, but. I was, I was changing the map. I was changing people's names <laughs> down to the down to when they pulled the manuscript out of my hands. <laughs> um, and that, that should create um, a sort of consistency and flow. I, you know, that was my goal. Um, I did get uh, one reviewer who said um, that book one didn't stand alone. And I thought, well, it's not supposed yeah, to. That's not the point. Why do you think it, it should? What what model are you, you know, operating off of? <laughs> well, the George R. M. Martin, right, of a uh, model of, you know, waiting twelve years, fifteen years to publish a book. Yeah, yeah. Well, me. One thing that I think is really interesting about that too is if I were to write a book now and finish it, you know, finish a series, say ten years from now, I've changed as a person a lot too. And I think that's going to change the story. And sometimes maybe that could be good and sometimes bad too, right? I mean, if you want to tell a particular story, which is what you're doing here, you're telling this one story, you know, five years from now, that story might change so much in your head because you change a lot and maybe that doesn't come out the way you yeah, want it to. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting point. But I think, um, well, uh, your readers can't, I mean, your listeners can't see my gray hair. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of cooked at this point. Um, I'm, I'm not in my more formative, you know, what, what that has changed in the seven years is the world around me has right. changed dramatically. Right. Sure. Um, um, and, um, but there's, there's not much you can do about that when you're a writer anyway. Sure. And you mentioned that. So seven years, you say, is that that's how long that you've been working on the book or the series? Yeah, that's how long I worked on the, on the books from uh, beginning to publication. Um, a, a year of that was not really um, uh, my time. A year of that was uh, Tor's time, copy editing and, and layout right. and things like that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Back, back of the back of the building publishing. Right. Right. And that's interesting because I that makes me think of when I so we met at a, I met you at a an event that you were at here in Chicago, and you mentioned a a story. You you told a story about the first scene that kind of popped into your head uh, that kind of got the series going for you. Do you want to? Is it, I thought maybe you could recall that for the listeners here because I think that's it was a really important. If not, I'll just pretend you did. Originally, the first chapter of the series was when uh, Cerulea and Persia meet, uh, the two little girls. Um, and there was this emphasis on friendship, female friendship, and the fountain. It's, it's now, I think, chapter four in the book. Um, yeah. yeah. Yes, that's yeah. She's on a walk with her mother out, getting out of the castle grounds, right? Or right, right, yeah, right, right. And why? That's interesting that because I wouldn't have pegged that as the first scene that was that was written. Um, why was? Why did that scene stick out to you as something that needed to start the book off, at least in the beginning? Because, um, um, well, you know that. Um, 
in so many ways, um, this series is my um, companion piece to The Lord of the Rings. Mm. And The Lord of the Rings is so much about male friendship. Mm. The four hobbits and then the nine walkers, right? You right. know. Yeah. And, and so the thing I wanted to stress at the very beginning was a friendship between girls. It grows up to be a friendship between women. Yeah. That's really interesting you mentioned that because that was <clears throat> what I was thinking about uh, when I was reading the book, kind of the, the power, um, you know, really a lot. To me, when I read this book, there's a really a, a theme, kind of an overarching theme of of power hierarchy here mm-hmm. and the, you know, this, you know, Warendale, it's, it's a female, it's a, you know, it's, it's female powered, right? So it's always a female in power. And so I wanted to bring that up to you and ask you why that was so important to you as far as making sure that it was always a female in power there. Is there, you know, what kind of a statement that's making? Sure. That was my, you know, feminist statement. And, and actually I kept arguing with people. Um, at one point they wanted to call this series the nine kingdoms. Mm. And I said, no, no, they're not kingdoms. One of the most important one is a queendom. <laughs> um, isn't it interesting that there isn't a word for that? I mean, we wouldn't, use that word so that's how they ended up with the nine realms um but um yeah i wanted um uh women in positions of power many women in positions of power binders full of women in positions of power so there's also destra who's a magistrate right Mm -hmm. and there's female agents of the nature spirits Right. Um, and um, so it wasn't that there was just one exceptional um, kick-ass woman protagonist. There should be, it's it's it is a world where there is a lot of male power, but there's also a lot of balancing female power. Yeah, and you're right. We don't see that a ton in fantasy. I think it's becoming more and more. But but right. um, yeah, you know, ten years ago there wasn't a whole lot of that. So. Right. I think and there's I'll, a niche there. There's a place for it. I've read it's just the one heroine, right? Mm-hmm. And she goes, on, right. she's kind of a, a singular figure. And I I didn't want that. Right. Is there something to then, you know, um, again, I don't want to get into, I don't want to have any spoilers, but, you know, the beginning of the book, you have Regent Matwick who kind of takes over and kind of usurps that power from her. Right. Is there something to that then as far as, you know, it's a female powered place, but now you've got this male in power? Sure. And he's that, and he and many of his cronies are drawn to be particularly misogynistic mm-hmm. and particularly um, belittling of the female queens. Gratuitously yeah. uh, um, belittling of female power. Right, and so you got a lot of give and take there, I think. Yeah, in the way yeah, that works. Yeah. What about Cerule? So Cerule goes on this kind of epic journey, right? I mean, that's kind of the point of, of everything here. I wanted to know, um, you know, she goes on uh, this this journey where it's almost like um, she's, you know, she goes through heartache and pain. And she's got a lot of grief and trauma. 
she also has a lot of positive things along the way too. Uh, you know, she learns, you know, she finds people who are loyal to her. She finds love. She finds lust. You know, she right. finds, um, you know, the good and the bad that's kind of out there in the world. Why, why was that journey so important? Was it, you know, when I look back at uh, kind of the previous history of the, the queens there, you don't see a lot of that. So was it just about getting her to learn how to be a good ruler or yes. was there more to it than that? Well, that was a major part. Um, her mother was a weak ruler. Mm -hmm. She would never have been overthrown. And Cerulea, number one, she has to grow up. But number so some people call this series a coming of age, which is fine. I don't care. It's not yeah. exactly what I was thinking of. Sure. But um, she she has to grow up, and she has to learn much more about different classes, uh, different injustices, what real pain is, what it means to use people, right? There's a sort of moral education that she undergoes um, before she's ready to be queen. And even, um, uh, you know, in book four, she's still growing and learning. Um, what, what I, one of the themes of the book that I, I really, um, what was really important to me was sort of the ethics of killing. Mm -hmm. A lot of, um, a lot of fantasies just kill people right and left. Right. Yeah. As if, as if, you know, as if they don't matter at all, as if it's, as if it's fun or funny or it's just exciting. And um, during the Nine Realms, I, I try and get sort of more and more and more serious about what it means to take a life and what different people um, learn from or think about uh, killing. Um, so I think, I think you really see that in book four. Yeah. And you get a lot of grief there. I mean, and, they, and I think you really, so, to that point, you see, I see a lot of scenes where they kind of focus on that grief, right. And how it, how it affects the people around them right. uh, when different characters are killed. And that enemies are not just enemies. Enemies are people too. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the one of the big and deserved criticisms of um, Tolkien is that he just created the orcs to to make them sort of bestial and and make you feel happy about killing them off. Mm. There's there's nobody in the nine realms that you really should feel happy when they die. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I guess I see that a lot in the book, too. And, you know, that really makes me think a little bit of, you know, the, the counterbalance as I see it in Cerulea's story, which is Thalen, right? And his group of raiders and how they go through that a lot, too. You know, not just, not just her, but they, they have a lot because obviously there's a, a resistance section there, right? So, yes. Um, and actually, they both go through this journey about thinking about violence, mm -hmm. and um, and um, uh, you and we, you know, 
interesting to talk to people who who read the whole series, who they think comes out at the more moral place at the end. Um, because that was something I, I thought about a lot, of the differences in their ethics. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm, you know, I never thought, I never actually thought to compare them. I might go back and do that. Maybe I'll, uh, okay. I'll let you know, go back and, and have some more thoughts on that. That's inter an interesting thought. I'm so glad you brought up Thalen because um, somebody said, you know, and this is part marketing, Tor named it the queen in hiding and the back of the book is all about Cerulea. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was writing it, I really meant it to be a multifocal, multi-character epic. Yeah. And to me, Thalen is, is you know, if, if Cerulea is the main character, Thalen's just right behind her. And yes. The other characters are are really important too. They're not just oh, let's randomly switch to this other continent here. Um, for one, Sunroth, who's the leader of the Oros, yeah. um, he has an emotional and ethical journey, mm -hmm. uh, and and so does Matwick. I mean, people end up in different places, um, but and. And sometimes I thought that Stalia, the mother figure, mm. was my favorite character. She was really interesting. <laughs> She's the cranky artist. Yeah. Yeah, and she was kind of, yeah, and she, she kind of was a bedrock a little bit too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was, and I, I am glad. I'm actually glad you brought that up because I, one of my questions I wanted to ask you about was those point of views was just how um, it seemed like there was a real focus on that on getting all of these different perspectives in. Um, and so when you're talking about power and resistance and war and killing and morality and ethics, you know that just you, everyone's got their own different set of morals, right? Right. Uh, was that was that purpose? Was is that what you were thinking when you were getting these point of views in? Like, let's. Yeah, I, I was thinking about. There's a a French movie director who who was um, very famous in the 30s and 40s, named Jean Renoir. He was uh, the painter Renoir's son. I I and the name. Um, uh, he said, "Everyone has their reasons," mm -hmm. and that that was so important to me that the oros are not just the oros are not orcs they're not embodiments of evil there's a reason why they're invading they're starving and right. i mean if you were starving you might invade the the, the next door country too sure. and if you Especially if you thought that your crops were failing mm -hmm. because they've been poisoned by your international enemy, right? Right. Yeah. So, so I go to I go into Sumroth's head. I go into Matwick's head. I go, but then there was also sort of a practical thing. Um, Cerulea can't be everywhere <laughs> at every time. Right. And so if we're going to show the battles that Salem goes through, it's got to be the people who are participating, not, I mean, she's not there yet. 
Right. Right. The, I wanted to ask you about that too. So the, um, obviously the, the history that you have, um, professor of, uh, his film history. Uh-huh. And you mentioned, you mentioned this, uh, you know, Jean Renoir is there, how else, like, how has your, um, your previous experience with the film history, how, how did you bring that in to this story? Um, first of all, it was the shifting point of views. Mm-hmm. Every television show you see has shifting POVs. I mean, think about the TV version of Game of Thrones, right? Oh, yeah. We're here, we're there, we're here, we're there, we're all somewhere over the else. Place. All over the place. Yeah. Um, then um, there's certain climactic chapters. I don't know if you noticed when you were reading them, but there's at least three major chapters where instead of just going from one person's point of view, I write it as if it was edited shots. Um, And uh, it can be everywhere. I was writing it as if it were a montage. Um, And then some of my models when I was writing were movies, not books. I was thinking of um, this Western called um, The Magnificent Seven. Or I was thinking of a Japanese film called The Seven Samurai. Okay. Or there's one scene where Salen stops a mob from lynching somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was thinking of To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't even make that connection. Uh, there's even, I mean, no one will know this unless. But I took some lines from my favorite movies and gave them oh, to characters. Really? Yeah. I have to go back and think about any movies I would know. Um, there's a line from Sweeney Todd. Oh. Uh, about uh, how, how I will have vengeance. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, actually, the way the line goes is not grammatical. And in copy editing, they changed it. And that was one of the only times I wrote stat, I mean, go back to my original, because I was deliberately <laughs> quoting Sweeney Todd, and oh. I wasn't going to change it. Oh, really? So you, that moment of pushback for you there, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I didn't so, catch that. And there's a, there's a great line, you may not know this movie, but it's a uh, 50s Western called <laughs> Johnny Guitar, where um, Sterling Hayden says to somebody, I'm a stranger here myself. Mm. And I just took that line and gave it to somebody <laughs> in the middle of me. Because I could. This yeah. is my, my little universe, right? Yeah. I can... Uh, personal associations that have to do with my family or places I've been, uh, also movies I've seen. Yeah, it's great when you see those worlds collide like that. Your, you yeah. know, the movies you got it in the book. I wouldn't have known. Do you think that your students? I met a few of your students when we were out there, and they seemed very dedicated. Would they have gotten? Did they get those lines? Did they pick those uh, up? They got some of them. They got some of them. Okay. There's a, there's a, and then they got some I didn't even really know. Uh, but I think they're right. One of my student assistants, I don't know where I got Cerulean. I mean, it, you know, it, it becomes important. Yeah. Uh, and one of my student assistants wrote to me and she said, you got that from the Devil Wears Prada. 
there's the whole scene, <laughs> which is about a cerulean sweater. Oh. It's not blue, it's not turquoise, it's not aqua, it's cerulean, Meryl Streep tells the, the young girl. And she's probably right. That's probably where I got it. Well, it's funny because I, I actually had that on my list of like, why cerulean? Like, and, and, you know, the blue hair thing. And then I just crossed it out because I thought I'm not going to ask that question. It's kind of a lame question, but. No, uh, well, it's just, it's just more of process, my process and where things came from. Yeah, that's really interesting. And hang on one second. We're at almost 30 minutes. So I'm going to. Okay. You got to switch over. Yeah, let me switch over. So the other question I wanted to ask you is about um, just current events. Um, were there any any you know political climate, you know social climate, any current events like that that really had an effect on your writing for the series? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Oh, it's funny. It's a question that when I was on book tour and I was in Los Angeles, um, my students ask that question because they know me so well. And uh, many of them had, one of them said, I took the McCarthy era with you. I can't believe that you don't have political uh, references in this fantasy. And I said, well, funny you should mention that. Um, there is um, a scene in um, book two, which is a massacre of uh, of um, herding village, and um, you might wonder where I got that or where that came from. It really was inspired by a photograph I saw of um, a Syrian refugee, a little boy who had been drowned in the Mediterranean and had washed up on the sand, and this image of this, um, you know, departed innocent resonated with me so strongly. And so in the Sweet Meadow scene, I wanted to capture um, just the horror that in conflicts, it's children, it's women, it's that are uh, that suffer, and and people look the other way, right? So that was one of the yeah the one I was thinking of. The other um, thing that played a, a large role in uh, in the um, series is the idea of the disappeared political. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, activists in Latin America. Um, I deliberately used that term and the hidden prisons and uh, people uh, going away to, you know, disappearing. Okay, good. Yeah, it's, and it sounds like your students are just trolling through your books trying to find bits and pieces of your personality in there. Like, do they have like a late night session? Like, let's just read it and pick out pieces.
about a style of writing where you don't use passive voice because passive voice avoids responsibility. And I would say once every two months, one of my students sends me a news clipping saying, look, Sarah, they use passive voice. They're avoiding responsibility. They're saying mistakes were made as opposed to I made a mistake, right? Right. So, um, so yeah, um, I, I love my students. And one of the saddest things that happened to me this fall was I was on this book tour and in every city I was seeing my students and then they, because of COVID, the bug got pulled on my book tour. Yeah. It sounds like you have a great relationship with them. So I can imagine that's a tough thing to go through. That that was, I was really, that was kind of a heartache. And, and as much as I, you know, this is okay. I like talking to you on zoom. I, I love being, you saw me in Mm -hmm. the bookstore. I love being there with them. Yeah. Yeah. You were, you were great. I mean, you, and you were very, I, very social. The first thing I, I just remember one of your students walking up to me. The first, you remember what the first thing they said to me when you and I were having a conversation was, "No, are you from Vassar? Are you from Vassar too?" And I was like, "I don't know. Listen, I don't know what that is." And then you're like, "Oh, that's," and they're like, and you're yeah. like "Oh, that's one of my students." Yeah. So um, you know, I, I taught for thirty-one years. I just retired. This. Do you need to deal with the dog? Oh uh, no, being here. My wife's got her. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, uh, I taught for 31 years. I used to bring my dogs to class. Um, and um, um, I just retired this spring. I'm glad I did because I wouldn't want to teach on Zoom next year. COVID conditions. But um, I so miss not being able to be in a room with them or with readers um, to have that interpersonal connection. Yeah, I imagine. Do you know, because um, I see that a lot of a lot of your tours, you know, a lot of the stops were canceled. A few of them you're doing, you're going to do some the on, like an online digital format. Uh, do you have any yeah. idea what that looks like beyond, say, May, June, July, or like July, August? Have they, you know, any indication when you're getting back on it? I think everybody is just doing digital things for now. Um, it's, you know, the risk is, I, I wouldn't go to a bookstore with a lot of people right now. I don't right. want people to risk their health at this point. But uh, I want them to support their local bookstores. Right. <laughs> Not maybe for a talk. Right. Um, but for someone like myself who, who really loves that interaction um it, it's you know it's another it's just another thing right that's destroyed by the epidemic yeah uh, it hasn't been easy for anyone i it, it just you know, being but being a kind of a debut author i think is particularly tough right now in, at least in that area um yeah it's hard to get the marketing I out i was lucky that i got to go to bookstores and do things in January and February. People who are debuting in April and May and June, they're just doing, um, uh, you know, online. Yeah. 
It is. Yeah. I can't, just, yeah, can't imagine having a book coming out in April or May and just being like, I can't, I can't get out and see people. I can't get out and talk about it. You only have, you know, there's only a certain amount of audience who can reach doing it, you know, online digitally. Uh, right, people are dedicated right. to their locals. And everybody, I mean, I wonder how long this digital will work. On the one hand, it defies time and space um, restrictions. But on the other hand, if you've been working on your computer all day, do you really want to sit in front of a, a Zoom, a, you know, mm -hmm. uh, another Zoom talk at night for fun? Yeah. I know, yeah, it's, I'm on three or four hours a day for work every day, so. Um, so yeah, I totally understand that feeling. Um, I still try to get to as many as I can, but I also know that it's not an easy thing too. People have that access to technology. Sometimes it doesn't work. Right. So it's frustrating. Right. I did have right. one, one more question about the book. Um, I was thinking about this, like the, the nature spirits that you mentioned. Uh -huh. And I remember talking to you in the, the, when I met you and we talked about the first, I think I had read the first two by then and I was getting ready for book three. I just gotten book three that day actually. And I said, you know, interesting, you're bringing up these, these kind of spirits. Uh, and I said, sometimes I, you know, I, I wonder uh, what the author's motivation for doing that is, you know, what this story would look like without them. Um, where did that come from for you? These, the idea of the spirits and, and, the, and the way they interact with the story. And I don't want to tell too much cause I don't want to uh, spoil anything yeah. that you don't yeah. want me to. So you can go in as much detail as you want to, it's up to you, but. You know, this story would have been very different, I think, without them. Um, yeah, but, um, it was actually, actually it ties back to your earlier question about contemporary events. Um, I was thinking about climate change. No. I was thinking about water scarcity. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about hunger in the future. And the only way... I could think of to bring in, you know, there, there is one point where all the nature, I'm going to say this, where all the nature spirits have a fight yeah, <laughs> and, right. and they are, they are at loggerheads and it's almost like, uh, about to be the destruction of the climate on, on earth. I wanted to bring in that kind of dire, um, stakes. And so I used I used the spirits to do that. Although you know, notice the spirits never appear. They never come on screen. You barely hear them. They work through their agents. Yeah. And seriously, I was thinking about real estate agents. I was thinking about people who act for principles. You know. Yeah. And. And so I, I had fun with the agents. So you literally um, took that term literally. Yeah. Who gets to be an agent? Why are they an agent? Um, people don't believe they're an agent, oh, yeah. right? Yes. With luck, um, uh, what it means to be an agent, you know? So yeah. that, that became fun. Yeah. Well, the, there are certain qualifications, right? I guess, it, yeah, I guess it does kind of tie in there. That's really interesting. But yeah, it's interesting symbolism, really. There. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's good. not that original. I mean, I was just using kind of the Greek gods, but sure. I I repurposed them. <laughs> Listen, all for repurposing. Um, so okay, good. So I mean, I think we've gotten a lot into what the books mean. Like I said, this is one of my favorite 
series of the year so far. I absolutely love it. Um, uh, what's so? What's next? Can you tell us what's next for you? Do you have anything on tap? Are you writing anything right now? I, you mentioned to me you're writing a lot. So I finished a standalone, um, which is um, not a, an epic fantasy. It's more of historical fiction with a little bit of fantastical element. Okay. And it's it's at my agent right now and will be going out for submission soon. Um, and then I just started, um, I think it's a thriller. Um, because, you know, I'm in this um, uh, unusual position. I am retired from my main career. So I can do And I want to write, uh, this is sort of a, uh, it's about journalists. Journalists are the heroes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little bit like All the President's Men or um, Spotlight. It's about investigative journalists are the, are the heroes of this thriller. Wow. I'm going to have to do a lot of research about the techniques of investigative journalism. But... Um, but I have the characters, I have the plot, I just started it. Sounds like you're sticking to your film roots, though. Yes. You can, you can, I mean, in some ways, if I were really brave, I would write this as a screenplay instead of a novel, but I'm oh. not that brave. No. Gonna write, I will write it as a novel, and we'll see if anything ever happens to it thereafter. That's interesting. Have you? I, and I see that you, because you do have. I mean, this is a debut fantasy novel for you, but obviously you've written a lot of, you know, other things. You know, essays I, and got involved in some critical works. You've never, never done a screenplay, though. I've never done a screenplay, and and it's a very um, uh, unforgiving form. It has to be hmm. only one hundred and twenty pages. You know. Oh. It, it has to be formatted exactly. It has to have the three-act structure. I don't want to be confined that way. Uh, I want to tell this this uh, investigative journalism as heroes story my way. Uh, so we'll see. Do you think it's easier to adapt the other way around? Write a novel, get it adapted. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Most movies are adaptations of novels. Right, that's true. And this is this has been true since the silent era. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. What about uh, Are We Returning to the Nine Realms anytime soon? I'm not closing it. I'm not closing it out. Um, I. I went to all that trouble to build that world, <laughs> but it will, um, it will wait for me. Sure. It, it, it's, it's there. Um, and, um, I'm, I'm eager to try, you know, other things. Um, and I'll tell you one thing, I'm not eager to write a four book series over seven years. No. That, I'm sure that wasn't your goal seven years ago either, right? It was. Oh, I didn't know. I just didn't know what I was doing. Uh, so, um, so I'm more looking at 
um, standalones. Um, single volume, one volume, one volume. Um, but it's funny, people on Twitter or whatever keep saying, are you, are you publishing more? And I do worry a little bit that if I switch genres, they won't know where I've gone. But so they'll just have to follow me on Twitter and then they'll know. Sure, yeah. And so, so let's talk about where, where can the people find you? Hopefully they, they read your blog. Hopefully they read our blog. But you and so on Twitter and Instagram, you're Sarah Kozlov, right? Yes. Sarah Kozlov. Um, again, I, nine. I, I'm. I don't remember the punctuation issue. Uh, I'm Sarah Kozlov on both Twitter and Instagram, but one yeah. of them is a period and one of them is an underscore. Oh. Okay. Oh yeah. I guess I've never noticed that. <laughs> okay, but people yeah, can find yeah. you there. And your website, and again, you've got a lot There's of your. Only what, I mean, if they they look up my name, they'll find me. Yeah, that's true. And then, you know, like you said, you blog, and you do have a lot of your critical works on there. I was on there. It actually links to Amazon to all those too, and you can yeah. read through some. So it's really interesting. Um, yeah. So um, so thanks for being with me today, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you answering my questions uh, and spending time with me. It was good to see you again. It was great to see you and. Thanks for taking this series so seriously, and I wish you and and your your blog and website all the luck. I know you've been interviewing some really interesting people, so I'm proud to be among them. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we're good to have you on the uh, on the uh, Mount Rushmore there. So, um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> Nine Realm yeah, series, Sarah Kozlov. Go out and get it. I highly recommend it. Okay. All right. Thanks, Eric. Night. For those of you who have not had the opportunity to visit The Nine Realms by Sarah Kozlov, here is a audio recording from A Queen in Hiding, which is book one. It's read for you by Imogene Church, and it's brought to you by Macmillan Audio. Part one. Reign of Queen Cressa, year eight. Early winter. Chapter one. Cascada. Have you noticed anything different or unusual about the Princella since our last conference? Asked Chronicler Sewell. Not really. Queen Cressa had to admit, with a sidelong glance at her daughter, who was perched with a sullen mouth on the chair beside her in the Chronicler's private office. His desk bookshelves and stiff-backed chairs made the modest room cramped. Or perhaps the Queen's physical discomfort arose from the subject at hand. 
This was the fourth time she had brought Princella Cerulea for her definition, and again the visit boded to be a failure. She uh, hasn't shown extraordinary perception or navigational ability or skill at archery. No, Cerulea spoke for herself. I haven't. Sewell nodded, his quill scratched against a piece of paper, his hand shielding his words. Princella, do you know what I've written? Now, how could I know that? She answered, the front of her shoe just reaching the floor, which allowed her to scuff her toes. How would we recognize Sewell if she manifested as a puppeteer? asked the queen. That's easy enough. Princella, use your mind to make me clap my hands. Sewell's hands didn't move. Cerulea made a sound of disgust. What about a far viewer? Queen Cressa suggested. Cerulea, can you see your father? Mama, I would have told you if I could. Although she didn't move her feet, her mother heard the tiny snort through her nose and saw the way her upper lashes slammed against her lower. Indeed, said Sewell, rubbing his sparse goatee. I imagine that you've become acutely aware of past Queen's talents. Grandmama was defined for summers, and Mama at six. And here I am at eight, and I can't do anything. I highly doubt, my Princella, that after having endowed all the queens of Wirendale with a special talent, Nargis would abruptly discontinue the practice with you. Seol gestured toward the indicia of Nargis in the room, a waist-high white marble column that broadened at the top into a bowl shape. Water continually overflowed the bowl, falling into a ribbon-like trough that circled back down around the base. We must just not have recognised your ability. Cressa found Sewell's surety comforting. We keep expecting that you will be an enchanter like me, she said. We may be overlooking something obvious or something rare. Mama, can't you use your enchanter's talent to figure it out? Cerulea asked. Her face looked drawn in the pale light of a winter morning. I wish I could. My own talent is so limited. If you'd read more in The Queen's Chronicles, Your Majesty, you would realize that all talents grow over time. They typically start quite narrow, and then as the queen matures and faces challenges, she discovers that her talent spreads into adjacent areas. Nargis does not want to overwhelm her queens with powers they are not yet ready to wield. Sewell's gaze grew distant, and he rubbed his chin again. Though no talent is limitless... Each queen inevitably discovers blockages and exclusions. I've often wondered if Nargis places these there with some kind of design. 
Yes, <laughs> yes, I know. I must make the time to look at the books on other enchanters. The Queen acknowledged with a touch of frustration. At any rate, I take it we can make no further progress today toward defining the Princella. Princella, Sewell addressed her directly and leaned forward. Is there anything you can do that other people can't? Last time I told you I like to make up stories, but lots of people can do that. And nothing happens when I tell tales. I mean, the giants don't become real or anything like that. Sewell nodded. She's got a good ear for music, said Cressa. But we discussed this last year, and I've paid close attention ever since. <laughs> music may be a comfort in her life, but not a magical talent. I can talk to my horse, Cerulea offered hesitantly. Sewell leaned back, his head, because he was so slight of stature, not even reaching the top of the chair back. A smile reached his grey eyes. Ah, oh, that childish fancy. It's not a childish fancy, said Cerulea, with an extra swing of her foot. Oh, I didn't mean on the part of your highness. I was referring to my own fancy when I was young that I could talk to my pony. Seal's neat-featured face lost its habitual shrewd expression. I uh, used to whisper in his ears by the hour and imagine he understood me. I think such a belief is quite common among children. And he talks back to me, Cerulea said. Out loud? asked the chronicler, sitting up straighter. No, in my head. Does he speak the common tongue? No, not really, her daughter faltered a little. He just, well, thinks at me. Hmm, Sewell shook his head. My pony conveyed that he wanted a treat or he wanted his neck scratched. Animals are remarkably good at communicating their desires non-verbally, aren't they? The royal chronicler brightened. But this may show that you are on the way toward developing a branch of intuition, which is a subset of enchantment. Your Majesties, I'd suggest you stay alert for any more definitive manifestation. In the meantime, I will do a little research. He waved his hand at the arched doorway behind his desk that led from his office into the royal library. Very well, Sewell, Cressa rose. Cerulea followed suit, and Sewell jumped to his feet. Cerulea, run along to your lesson chamber. Tutor Wrighton will be waiting. Once her daughter had left them alone, the queen, standing with her hands on her chair back, addressed her chronicler. Sewell, tell me, should I be worried? Has this ever happened before? We must have faith. The waters flow on the path they choose, he replied. However, under her continued intense gaze, he withered. Uh, 
No, not to my knowledge. Usually a princella's talent is marked by five or six at the latest. And after the chronicler defines her, said Cressa, he hoists the queen's flag so that everyone knows that Nargis has again blessed the line with some extraordinary power as a mark of the spirit's favor. That the whole palace marks us visiting you, and yet the flag is never raised. This is becoming hard for Cerulea. She meant to excuse her daughter's pouts. She didn't add that the uncertainty also undercut her own rule. Sewell would understand this. Sewell made a helpless, baffled shrug. As you said, your majesty, we must be overlooking something obvious or something rare. Nargis grants the talents, but it is up to us to recognize them. And then it is up to you royals to learn how to wield them.